Hello, my name is Joshua Gilliland, attorney blogger on Bowtie Law and the Legal Geeks. With me today is Jerry O'Brien, a New York political consultant and the author of the very cool steampunk novel, 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, Robot Fighter. Jerry, how are you today? I'm well, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. First up, I loved 1901. A lot of fun. I'm a huge TR fan. I have a bust of him on my desk. So it was fun seeing a steampunk novel focused on Roosevelt. And just, it's a lot of fun. Well, it, it always struck me that if you were going to have uh, an American president in popular culture, and uh, just as a, a way of, of backing into this, the idea for this came to me in two different times. About 10 years ago, I found this antique metal sign for the Winchester Rifle Company that has a bust of TR on it and illustrations of some of the wildlife that he hunted. And the caption to the photo or, or the headlines is, talks about, you know, the 3030 Winchester is the gun which Vice President Roosevelt used in his recent hunting trip. And I know enough about Roosevelt to know that there really is no vice presidential memorabilia for TR. And when I saw this in an antique store, I grabbed it immediately. It is the only piece of vice presidential memorabilia that I have found to date that exists for him, which is interesting because he was only vice president for about 194 days, six months. Um, and then a few years later, there were there was a Broadway play, a, a rock opera about Andrew Jackson, followed shortly after by the book about Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, and the movie, which featured the same actor who played uh, Andrew Jackson as, as Lincoln. And I said to myself, you know, if you're going to do a story about an American commander-in-chief as an action hero, with all respect to Andrew Jackson and all respect to Abe Lincoln, there's only one, and that's T.R., absolutely agree. It, it's a natural fit. Well, let's, the title of the book gives you an idea that it's steampunk era, it's 1901, and TR is out fighting robots. Before To understand how that world came to be and understanding the alternate history, let's just run down real U.S. history. Uh, this isn't a college class, but the short version of Civil War uh, 1864, when Lincoln's reelected, uh, his vice president is Andrew Johnson, uh, the only Democratic senator who did not resign his seat at the beginning of the Civil War. He was from Tennessee, uh, the mountain half, so it didn't have slaves. And upon Lincoln's assassination, Johnson becomes president, and bad things happen or basically nothing happens during the, the remainder of that term, which then follows Grant getting elected in 1868, Haynes in 1876, Garfield, one of my favorites in 1880. Arthur takes over for Garfield's after he dies uh, from assassination in 1881, Cleveland in 1884, Harrison, Cleveland again in 1892, McKinley elected in 1896. Then Roosevelt put on the ticket in 1900 to shut him up and stop him from being progressive, uh, which is a great plan until McKinley takes a bullet. We saw how well that worked. Yeah. You know, when you go, you're one chicken bone away from nuclear weapons or being the guy in charge, maybe that's not the right person to try to make not a threat by making them VP. And Mark Hanna warned them about Roosevelt, and um, turns out he was right. 
Yeah, it's uh, and and I love TR. I loved what he accomplished. Well, let's- great man and uh, an inspiration to Americans of all ages from the time he was a young man. Yeah, overcoming asthma, riding around the carriage with his dad to to help him calm down and go to sleep. Just a fascinating character. Well, let's let's talk about the alternate history and. Could you tell us the differences on, on what are the changes? Well, as I was saying to you a little earlier, uh, in science fiction, there's a term known as the John Barr point, which is a point where history diverges into two alternate timelines. And the, the John Barr point for my novel takes place in 1864, about 37 years before the start of my novel, when Lincoln's first choice for vice president, General Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, agrees to become his vice presidential running mate. In our timeline, and uh, Benjamin Butler turned Lincoln down, which is why he then asked Andrew Johnson to be his vice presidential running mate. With a northerner on the ticket, he still won. Lincoln survives the assassination, but he's paralyzed and near death for, for many, many months. So Vice President Butler and Secretary of War Edward Stan- Edwin Stanton run the country while Lincoln recovers, and they push for a lot of dramatic technological advances to protect the nation because uh, they didn't get all the conspirators and they're not sure how widespread the conspiracy was. Uh, It has the additional uh, aspect uh, of Butler's vice presidency. Because he's a northerner, there isn't the retribution against the South that we saw in our own timeline. Um, Technology advances, the phrase I've used is that Uh, Vice President Butler and Stanton pretty much went full Dick Cheney on the country in terms of technology. There were a lot of advances. By um, 1868, the first American airships are deployed from the Brooklyn Navy Yard here in in what is our New York City. In this timeline, Brooklyn never becomes part of New York City. It's its own city, and it is also the cultural and communications and entertainment center of the nation by 1901. But getting back to the timeline, we go from Butler as president with Lincoln for three for two ter- two additional terms. Grant becomes president in 1872. Uh, at that point, Charles Babbage's second difference difference engine, which is a precursor to the computer, is overcome by an American computer called the Electrotabulator, which is a product of the Edison and Tesla Corporation. Um, in 1876, we have another dramatic change. You may know as a student of history that that's the first year that a candidate won the popular vote but lost the presidential election. Uh, Samuel Tilden, the Democratic candidate in my timeline, picks George Custer, survivor of the Little Bighorn battle, and they win the the presidency for the Democrats the first time since the Civil War. And this ushers in a, a different era where Republicans are not so dominant in post-Civil War politics. Custer then serves two terms. Grover Cleveland becomes president in 1888, and McKinley becomes the first president in a couple of decades in 1896. But his vice president, Garrett Hobart, dies in office. We later find under perhaps mysterious circumstances. And in 1900, he's kind of forced to choose Theodore Roosevelt, not to shut him up, because in my timeline, Theodore Roosevelt has never been governor of New York. He went straight from liberating Cuba to invading Mexico and and taking Mexico over as an American protectorate. And as my novel opens, Mexico is on a path to become America's 
52nd state. Cuba is the 51st state already. And one of the debates in my novel between uh, the McKinley administration and Governor Gage of California is that the McKinley administration wants to admit Mexico as one entity as opposed to the various federal states that compose Mexico. And Governor Gage of California wants Baja California uh, and the neighboring Texas state to uh, Mexican state to come in as part of California. Which is super fascinating to think about, and the way that the states come in. Uh, those 50 states don't include Arizona, New Mexico, do they? Uh, the, the states, you're talking about the states that want Mexico? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, it's basically California because Gage, who was a very strange guy, I mean, it was a bubonic plague outbreak in California in, uh, in the late 1890s that he covered up. And one of the theories in the novel is that uh, Gage wants Baja, California, so, so he can use it as a dumping ground for plague victims. Uh, Arizona, New Mexico are pretty much on board with the idea of Mexico coming on board as a single entity. It's California that, you know, has the ulterior motives. And there were 51 states, you know, over the course of the years, um, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia are U.S. states, which come in partly as, uh, as a result of the construction of the mid-Atlantic, uh, of the, the transatlantic railroad between London and New York. Um, they used that as a staging area, and Newfoundland eventually becomes one of the American states. Uh, there is no West Virginia in my novel. It's just the state of Virginia. And also, Oklahoma and Kansas don't exist. There is a single combined state called Midland, which those of you who are fans of the TV show Fringe will recognize as a tip of the hat to that show. Which is fascinating. The, all the turns that you took with the John Barr points and having things go in a different direction and why Custer was victorious at Little Bighorn, you know, being a history geek and having spent a lot of time studying 19th century, uh, you know, I had chuckles to, well, that would, be, would have been interesting. Well, one of the interesting things is that uh, I talk in my novel about how Custer wins the Battle of the Little Bighorn because he's got these lightweight Gatling guns that he uses to disperse the the, uh, the Indian braves that attack him. Um, Custer actually set off in our timeline with Gatling guns. He left them behind because he was concerned that their weight was going to slow him down. And history showed that Native Americans tend to back off when they were confronted with new technology. So if he'd had a Gatling gun, even one, the chances are is that they, the Indian soldiers would have left uh, and he would have survived. And his father-in-law was one of the large, big Democratic fundraisers of the 1870s, and he certainly had presidential ambitions, Custer that is. So it's not unthinkable that he would have ended up president in our timeline if he'd actually survived the Little Bighorn. And I agree with that. So it's so it's one of those things that's interesting. Like those are neat turns, and we have those who end up president, who's like Cleveland. He granted he doesn't end up being the only guy to beat the guy who beat him, but we don't have a Garfield. And it's interesting to think about what laws exist and don't exist. Now we don't see a Pendleton Act. On the flip side, we don't have a Chinese Exclusion Act. And we're debating women's rights, uh, women's voting rights in 1901, in addition to how women have a very different role 
uh, because of the technologies that have come out. Uh, with you know, why don't you share the two big uh, industries that women control in in your world of 1901? Well, by the time my novel opens, uh, the film industry is well underway, and talkies have largely replaced the silent films. Brooklyn, uh, Long Island is the center of uh, entertainment in America, and um, one of the larger film companies, American Studios, is run by former actress Laura Keene, who is at this point married to widower Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln survived uh, Booth's attack at the theater, but his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, did not, and Lincoln eventually marries Laura Keene. She's a film magnate. She runs one of the largest studios on the East Coast and is producing films based on, among other things, uh, Bram Stoker's novel, The Undead, which we know as Dracula. Which I thought was very cool, the way that you had fun with the history and seeing the film industry of the 1930s kick off in the 1890s. So just a fascinating spin. Uh, yeah, one of the things I discovered in the course of writing this that uh, apparently Bram Stoker's novel was called The Undead until just before it was published. There was a manuscript, an original manuscript found in a steam trunk somewhere about 20 years ago that simply had the, the word The Undead typed on the cover page and it was crossed off and handwritten in place of it was the word Dracula. Wow. So it's little things like that that almost could have been, it, it doesn't take a, a big leap to imagine how things might have developed. And in terms of the technologies, I, I've generally said that the technology in my novel is anywhere between 30 and 50 years ahead of where it was in our timeline. But that's not necessarily true because if you, if you think about it, a lot of the technologies that we think of were actually invented many decades before they came into widespread use. For example, if you ask most people when the light bulb was invented, they'll probably tell you the 1890s, but the light bulb was invented around 1867. It wasn't widely produced and technologically sufficient for us until the late 1890s, but it was, it was available almost th over 30 years earlier. And my theory is that like the space program here in America, if you have enough money and political willpower behind it, you can take a newly emerging technology and, and get it out the door decades earlier. Yeah, I remember reading recently that cell phones could have came, been mass produced in the 1960s. And like, imagine how that would have changed society. Exactly. So just the, just those spins and those changes uh, and what you did with it's really cool. It's, it's a fun book just from the history geek point of view on what you see with the technology, the popular TV shows on Tesla vision and the fact that Tesla and Edison are not mortal enemies uh, was also an interesting spin. And you, you really had some fun with that. One of the characters in the novel is a former newspaper columnist, uh, Peter Finley Dunn of Chicago, who is now a talk show host on one of the emerging TV networks, uh, Muncie Media. Muncie, Frank Muncie was a newspaper publisher uh, in the Northeast and in uh, the Mid-Atlantic States. And I have him here as a media baron. And Peter Finley Dunn was 
probably the John Stewart or more likely the Stephen Colbert of his day. He did a newspaper column um, in Chicago called Mr. Dooley. And it was a character of an Irish immigrant who was a saloon owner. And he was a big fan of Theodore Roosevelt. He poked fun at Roosevelt. But he talked about political issues of the day in character in this column as Mr. Dooley. And it was like people would would read the newspaper every day to see what Mr. Dooley had to say about the world, much the same way as people tune in to see what Jon Stewart's take or Stephen Colbert's take is of politics today. And he's a a talk show host who, at the opening of our show, uh, has has basically become triumphant in the talk show wars because his chief rival on the other network is Sam Clemens, Mark Twain. And one of his guests on this show in the early chapter of my novel is Clemens, who basically comes to throw in the towel. His show has been canceled by the rival network, and he comes over to congratulate Peter Finley Dunn for having surpassed him. And there's an emerging friendship between Peter Finley Dunn and Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, in the course of my novel that uh, that shows a bit of an arc for Dunn and, and how he comes into being a more professional journalist and becomes to appreciate the role he can play as a journalist. Uh, and and Sam Clements helps him in that regard. Very cool. The other political world you created is also fascinating, and I don't want <clears throat> to have any spoilers for for those who who read the book. But the political espionage that takes place, and the the who done it, and the political issues of the day with women's voting rights, I thought were fascinating. I sort of moved the suffrage movement up by about 20, 25 years or so. The battle for women's suffrage is the main political issue of the day, and there is a September 30th deadline in my novel for uh, the suffrage amendment to the Constitution to get the two-thirds of the states that it requires to become law. My book starts on Inauguration Day, which was March 1st of 1901, and it ends in early September. Um, and those of you who know the, the Theodore Roosevelt timeline can probably figure out why it ends at that point, not to give anything away. But women's suffrage is one of the chief issues of the day. And we have characters like Laura Keene, this film producer, talking uh, on Dunn's show about the reason that she situated her business, her film empire in Brooklyn, was that New York State was one of the few states at the time where women could own property and sign contracts. Prior to the suffrage movement, a lot of women, a lot of states would not allow women to own property or sign contracts. Yeah, it's, it's the spin that you put on it. It's really cool. The other spin that I really enjoyed was the relationship between uh, Roosevelt and his daughter, Alice. And just for those who aren't familiar, uh, his first wife, Roosevelt's first wife was named Alice. And in real life, his mother and Alice died on the same day or one day apart, and Alice died in childbirth. And he then went off to the Badlands and played cowboy and had a very poor relationship with his daughter, Alice. In your world, that's different. Alice, his first wife, is his only wife in the course of of my novel. And it's a very loving relationship with TR. 
And TR's relationship with his now 18-year-old daughter, Alice, is also a very close, loving relationship. And Alice is the breakout action hero of my novel. In fact, I got a phone call uh, a few months back from uh, a neighbor of mine, Theodore Roosevelt IV, TR's great-grandson, who I've known for about 30 years. And I sent him an advanced copy of the novel, and he called me to thank me and tell me how much he enjoyed it. And he mentioned that he was particularly fond of the portrayal of Alice as the, the young action hero. And she is a master of martial arts because of her, her training with her close friend, who is the daughter of the Japanese ambassador to the United States. And Alice really kicks serious butt. And it's awesome the way you have her kick butt. So for those who check it out, it's, it's a, it's a fun read and the way Alice is portrayed in it, it's very cool. And the fact that they have a close relationship as opposed to a, um, strained relationship, um, is a beautiful thing. So with that, uh, how can people learn more about your book and can, can they order it yet? Not yet. I'm, planning to publish this traditionally and my agent Ben Bova the legendary science fiction author in his own right is shopping it around to publishers now one of them has been looking at it for a couple of months I'm hoping to hear back from them almost any day now Uh, so you can't read it yet but you can read the first chapter and read a lot more about the world of 1901 by going to my book's website which is 1901robotfighter.com 1901robotfighter.com. You can read the first novel, read the first chapter. You can read about the various characters. And uh, as you know, but your your listeners may not, with the exception of one or two minor characters, everyone in my novel is a real-life person who existed. I've taken their histories and, and altered them a little bit, but they're real people. And I even have a couple of characters who are the parents or will be the parents of some very famous science fiction and fantasy authors. H.P. Lovecraft's father, Robert E. Howard's mom are both characters. Uh, And there are a lot of interesting people there. I found that as I was writing this book, some of the things that, that I didn't know about these people meshed very nicely with the story. One of my characters is the former U.S. ambassador, former U.S. diplomat in Belgium by the name of Nicholas Fish. His, uh, his son, Hamilton Fish, fought in the Rough Riders with TR in Mexico and was killed there. And I, I didn't realize that um, Fish's father was a, a diplomat in Belgium until I had already written about his connections to the Belgian King Leopold in my novel. And Leopold, for those of you who don't know, uh, Came, comes in just barely under Adolf Hitler in terms of the number of people he killed. He's one of the greatest mass murderers of all time. Uh, I think Hitler eclipsed him by just about a million people who were victims. And, of course, uh, Leopold did this with 19th century technology and, and none of the mechanized uh, war machine that, that Hitler had at his disposal. But there are a lot of things that happen as a coincidence, things I didn't realize that uh, there were connections that I didn't know about. And, and the, the Nicholas Fish as a, a Belgian ambassador is one of them. That's pretty groovy. Uh, it, a lot of little happy accidents. But there's the technology, the politics. TR is an action hero because, let's face it, he was, are all really cool. And so I, I encourage people to check out Jerry's website, 
And when the book's available, I will be sure to tweet that out and, and encourage folks to read it because it is good fun. Josh, thank you so much. My pleasure, Jerry. And everyone, stay geeky.